0: to the Spring 2011 Griffin Policy Forum. I'm Pamela Gates, and I serve as Dean of the College of Humanities, Social, and Behavioral Sciences, which is home to the Robert and Marjorie Griffin Endowed Chair in American Government. The Griffin Endowed Chair in American Government was created through private contributions to honor three decades of service by two of CMU's esteemed graduates, former U.S. Congressman, U.S. Senator, and Michigan Supreme Court Justice Robert P. Griffin from the class of 1947, and his wife, Marjorie Anderson Griffin, class of 1944. The Griffin Endowment leads Central Michigan University's efforts to help prepare principal political leaders to serve Michigan in the future and to elevate political awareness and activity among students, faculty, and citizens. The endowment funds the salary and associated costs of a government and, politi- excuse me, and public policy expert who serves as faculty member in the Department of Political Science. The Griffin Endowed Chair appointees are selected for their exemplary records of public service and in-depth knowledge of Michigan government and politics. Maxine Berman is the fourth person to serve as a Griffin Endowed Chair in American Government at CMU. She was the director of special projects for the Office of Former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm from 2003 to 2010. Previously, she served as a member of the Michigan House of Representatives from 1983 to 1996. Please join me in welcoming Maxine Berman, who will in turn introduce our moderator.
1: Thank you. First of all, a little administrative business. If you are in my class and I did not see you, uh, make sure you see me after so I'll check you off on the list. Uh, Matt, I just saw you. Okay. Um, Well, welcome, and uh, we're delighted to have you here, and we're delighted to have this topic going on today. You know, most of you in here, like almost all Americans, will probably never be in a courtroom. In fact, you'll probably never, ever be in front of a judge for any reason, and yet, all of us have a stake in seeing to it that our judicial system runs in the most, um, <laughs> I was going to say judicial way possible, but uh, you know, in an absolutely nonpartisan and unbiased fashion. Um, and we also spend so much time, those of us who are political junkies, and I think most people here have some interest in politics, or they wouldn't be here in the first place. We spend so much time absorbed with, and maybe even in cases like for people like me, salivating over partisan elections, uh, that we never spend too much time looking at the judicial selection process. Uh, There is a new task force this year that is being chaired by Justice Marilyn Jean Kelly and Judge Bill Ryan regarding whether or not Michigan ought to change in some way the method by which we select our judges in the state of Michigan Uh, Other states do it differently. So uh, I have no uh, dog in this fight, by the way. (laughs) I have very mixed emotions in many different ways about this. But uh, I think it's a critical topic because all of us expect that our judicial system will be impartial. Unprejudiced and uh, completely fair in every single way. So, uh, I think this is a topic of great importance. And with that, I would like to introduce John Lindstrom, who is the publisher of Gongwer. And if you ever get a chance, you ought to read Gongwer, because about the best thing going in terms of understanding exactly what's going on in Lansing. And he will introduce the rest of the panel and get us started.
2: Thank you, Max, um, and thank you everyone for being here. Uh, I actually have been in a courtroom. Uh, I've served on five juries, and I got another one coming up. Um, And when I've sat in the jury box, I've sometimes wondered, who is this guy in the black dress, and how did he get there? Well, we have four people here who could talk about that, and maybe about what we should do to change the system. We start off to my immediate right, Justice Marilyn Kelly. Um, Justice Kelly is a graduate of Eastern Michigan, got her law degree at Wayne State. She once served on the Michigan State Board of Education before becoming a judge. She was elected to the uh, Court of Appeals in 1988 and elected to the Supreme Court in 1996. She uh, most recently was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and as Maxine said, (coughs) is now co-chairing this committee on which Judge Whitmer also serves. Uh, along with Judge Ryan, who was also a former Supreme Court Justice. To her right, we have Judge William Whitbeck, who is a uh, graduate of Northwestern, got his law degree at Michigan. He served under Governor Romney. He served in the Milliken administration. He, uh, he served in the transition teams for President Reagan and for Governor Engler. Governor Engler named him to the Court of Appeals in 1997. He has been Chief Judge of the Court of Appeals when he's not writing lengthy opinions. He's outselling his mystery to account for murder, which has to do with a political assassination, and he insists it's not autobiographical. <laughs> <laughs> to his right is Rich Robinson. Uh, he's our Uber. He's a native mm-hmm. of Sault Ste. Marie. Mm-hmm. He is also a Michigan man. He got several degrees at Michigan. He served with the Peace Corps uh, before getting into various forms of public service. For almost two decades now, he's been carefully studying the uh, campaign finance system here in Michigan as director of the Michigan Campaign Finance Network. And then to his right is Kelly Keenan, who uh, is a graduate of Michigan State, my alma mater. Thank God one of us aren't here. Uh, He got his law degree at Cooley Law School. He worked in the legislature as a legislative aide. Then he was a number of years in the Attorney General's Department, where he... Uh, began working with the then Attorney General Granholm. When she was elected governor, he became Chief Legal Aid to her, helped her in assessing the qualifications of, what, 150 different judges? About there. Um, he left to go on his own in private sector. He now runs uh, Keenan Consulting, but he has also served on the Civil Rights Commission. So here you all are, a murderer's row of legal experts. Uh-huh. And uh, Justice Kelly, we'll start with you. The judge selection process in this state is pretty basic, isn't it? You guy decides to run, guy woman decides to run for judge, and they get elected. That's that's all there is to it, is it?
3: Pretty simple, isn't it? <laughs> Except in fact, it's uh, it doesn't always work out that way. It's true we have an elective system. Judges in this state run for election. Usually they run in a primary and then a general election. And uh, those who run for the Supreme Court. Instead of a primary, go through a political convention and run in the general election. Most judges run for six years, but the Supreme Court judges run for an eight-year term. The truth is that nearly half of all the judges on the bench didn't get there originally by election at all. They got there by appointment of the governor. And that's, of course, because judgeships become vacant during that six or eight-year term, due to death or retirement. And when that happens, it's up to the governor to appoint the replacement. Interesting, in this state, unlike the federal system, the governor doesn't have to seek the approval of anybody at all. You recall federal judges require the uh, approval of the Senate. But uh, in Michigan, the judge or the governor can pick uh, whomever he or she wishes and uh, there is no confirmation process at all. Well, so we have a mixed bag of, 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 uh, of means by which people get to the court. Well, on
2: that point, Judge Whitbeck, you were appointed by uh, Governor Engler. Uh-huh. Um, what was the process you went through, if any, before being appointed? Did the governor call up and say, Bill, I want you on the court, or did you have to go through any kind of an interview process? And do you think you would have survived a uh, confirmation hearing?
4: Uh-huh. One hopes. Um. <laughs> My interview, fascinatingly enough, I was in private practice and I was invited to the governor's mansion in, in Lansing, uh, probably a misnomer because it's really not that grand a place, but it does have a big ballroom in the middle, sort of, and Sean uh, Engler motioned me over and, and in front of 200 people interviewed me for the, uh, for the job on the Michigan Court of Appeals. I mean, everybody in the room uh, knew what was going on except me. Uh, and I, I did not walk in thinking I was going to be uh, interviewed. I ended up <laughs> being interviewed in front of 200 people. Um, as such, when the governor called me uh, to say, I'd, I'd like you to, to accept the appointment, I was the only person he sent over to the State Bar. There is a State Bar vetting process in this. I was the only person in the waiting room, so I had, I had a pretty good idea that probably there was not gonna be uh, too much of a tussle I, I'm not sure that I would have, I'm reasonably hopeful that I would have survived a, a confirmation process, but those processes at the federal level have tended to become increasingly partisan. Mm-hmm. And um, my background was with three Republican governors George Romney, Bill Milliken, and John Engler. So I was pretty clearly a Republican. And um, it would have depended, I think, on the composition of the Senate. Um, I'm not sure, that's a, that's an open question. Fortunately, I didn't have to face it.
2: Well, Kelly, let's jump over to you, since you were involved in helping Governor Granholm select judges at virtually every level, uh, although her one Supreme Court appointee came after you left. Correct. Um, what did the governor look for? When, when there was a vacancy, what was your instruction in terms of who to find, what to look for?
5: Well, the, the governor who had She graduated like with high honors from Cal Berkeley and she was a law review editor at Harvard Law, which is kind of creme de la creme uh, of law schools if if you're really into that status thing. She really wanted people who had the best uh, academic backgrounds kind of at a first cut. And then what their life experiences were, how much they practiced. She had uh, practiced as a a federal prosecutor. She had a number of uh, convictions, I think 25-30, which in the federal system is quite a few. Uh, They they do not grind through prosecutions the way local prosecutors do. She also served as Wayne County Corporation Counsel. So she'd spent a fair amount of time in court and she wanted judges who were also uh, uh, attorneys who had had a background where they'd actually practiced law and had spent time in the courtroom. Our process was maybe a little more formal um, uh, than what Judge Whitbeck described, uh, we had a 30, 40-page questionnaire that was available to anybody who wished to be considered for an opening, and it was pretty detailed, and it required uh, disclosure of many issues, taxes, uh, grades, uh, any incidents that resulted in, a, uh, in any kind of uh, report involving criminal justice. Many other things like that, and um, we would select from a number of those uh, a panel to send over to the state bar judicial qualifications panel, who would interview and then rate the candidates based on highly qualified, qualified, not qualified for lack of experience, and not qualified, which you know were people who had um, you know other issues. Uh, with from that, we would usually. Select a couple, two, three names that seemed to be the best, and that the governor would be most interested in considering. And she would review, she would review their their law school transcripts, all the material on them, and to put some time into it. Now, with with respect to appellate judges, such as uh, Judge Whitbeck, I was involved with a number of those appointments. They they were. They were um, Similar, but maybe a bit more hands-on from the start by the governor having an idea of uh, who might be the judges should be most interested in elevating to the Court of Appeals.
2: We'll get back to that a little bit, but, but as Justice Kelly said, about half the judges are initially appointed, but at some point they're going to run for re-election most, in most cases. And you run for election these days, that means you gotta, you got to bring in the Mula. So, Rich, tell us a little bit about what's happening with judicial elections and money. They're getting
6: expensive, aren't they? Well, selectively they are. Uh, Generally speaking, Court of Appeals judges, at least over the last decade, have run unopposed, mostly. There are a few exceptions. Judge Whitbeck had a challenge (laughs) at one point within the last 10 years. But that's the exception rather than the rule. Typically, you'll have 13 Court of Appeals judges up for election, 10, 12, 13, something on that order. If you have one or two who are challenged, or you might have uh, two seats in a given district and you may have a third party run. So, uh, typically, Court of Appeals haven't involved a lot of money. Uh, The trial court judgeships, mostly incumbents run unchallenged. There are exceptions. Open seats become very expensive, but the 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 slice of the judiciary that has gotten very expensive is the Supreme Court. Uh, I I'm the the source behind the table that was passed out you with some data on on the back of it that summarized uh, Supreme Court campaign finances from 1994 through 2010, or 1984 rather, and for the period from 1984 through 2000, Supreme Court campaigns were relatively quiet affairs. Television wasn't much part of it. It became part of it later on in the 90s. Uh, most of the money that was involved in those campaigns was in the candidate committees, the the candidate's own campaign committees. The parties became involved later on, but. Over 90% of the money was within the candidate committees. Virtually all of it disclosed in the campaign finance reporting system. And during that period prior to 2000, money wasn't much of a controlling variable. In 18 campaigns, the candidate with the greater financial backing won 10 out of 18 times. Since 2000, Campaigns have gotten much more expensive. Much more of it is off the books uh, because it's spent on advertising that doesn't explicitly say vote for or against a candidate. They'll define the suitability of a candidate with a more coy use of language. Uh, Why is someone soft on crime? Why is someone in the, the pocket of an insurance company? And since they haven't explicitly directed you, the viewer, how to vote, in the view of the Department of State, that's not a campaign expenditure. And so what we've had is a dramatic increase in the amount of money spent, a dramatic increase in the percentage of it, which is undisclosed, and the money has become much more a controlling variable in the outcome of the campaigns. Since 2011, out of 12 can- candidates, were the successful candidates were the candidate who had the most financial backing. So, it, it it has gotten a lot more expensive. It has gotten a lot more obscure who's actually paying for it. And there's a, a particular hazard in that, in that uh, there was the the Caperton against Massey Coal Company ruling that said there comes a point. Where an individual financial backer's support can be so extraordinary in now, such a large part. Back up a little bit now. That was sure. in West
2: Virginia, wasn't
6: it? That was in West Virginia, yes. And uh, in that particular case, a, a single person spent $3 million on campaign ads supporting a candidate. His favored candidate won the election, then became the deciding vote on an appeal involving his financial backer, and it happened to be a case involving a $50 million damage judgment that was reversed. Well, that case got to the United States Supreme Court, and the court decided in a narrow five to four decision that there comes a time when there is a probability of bias because of the campaign support. And in such a case, The judge who is the beneficiary of that support is obliged to recuse himself from the case of his financial supporter. So in Michigan, we have this phenomenon where half the money is off the books. How does a party even know when to ask the question whether or not a judge can truly be Impartial and unbiased in their decision, or when the appearance in
2: that that category,
6: Michigan is not unique in that. This is a a national phenomenon that really began in 2000, and it's playing out this week in Wisconsin, where they're having a Supreme Court election. Uh, The control of the majority on the bench is at stake in this election. Interest groups, uh, left and right, have decided this is the first shot in the 2012 election cycle and, of course, with all the controversy uh, in the Wisconsin budget process, this has become a, a proxy for Republicans and Democrats, even though the candidates run as nonpartisans.
2: Well, let's go back to uh, Justice Kelly and, and, and Judge Whitbeck because Rich has talked about how since 2000, money has become a dominating factor, and both of you have run for election since that time. Right. Um, here you are. Justice Kelly, a jurist, you're sitting on the highest court of the state. You're supposed to be impartial. You're supposed to you know, turn a blind eye to the various parties and whatnot. And yet, you got to go out and raise money like any other any other guy running for dog catcher. What? What? First of all, do you like doing it? Uh, a and and B. Does it present to you in your mind any problems uh, doing it, and then having to go up knowing that it's possible some of these guys can come
3: before you? Strictly speaking, we don't raise money. Our campaign committee raises money. So actually, we don't touch it, uh, and we don't ask for it. That would be unethical. But you're right, we're still involved in it, and we still are aware where the money comes from, at least the money that's disclosed. (coughs) The money that comes directly into our candidate campaign fund is very carefully regulated and identified. It's this money that goes into third-party funds that Rich was talking about. And it can present a problem. I know the last time I ran, I took real pains to avoid accepting money from any lawyer, or person, or organization that had a case currently pending in the Supreme Court. It's not always easy to know uh, if if a case is uh, on the cusp of coming, um, but um, That was one effort I made to avoid the awkward situation of taking money from uh, a person or an organization uh, that had contributed to my campaign.
2: Have you ever felt like you had to recuse yourself because of a campaign contribution?
3: No, now I haven't been the beneficiary of the kind of money uh, that was involved in that uh, South Carolina case. In fact, I'm fortunate probably in that none of my campaigns involved Really big bucks. Uh, so, but even so, one has to come to terms with the situation. And the way I've handled it is, um, I've resolved that I will make decisions independent of uh, the fact that a that a lawyer or a litigant might have contributed to me somewhere along the line.
2: Judge Woodbeck, what about this issue of third-party funding? Um, is- as far as you're concerned as a a judge, does this create a problem for you as a judge?
4: It has created no problem for me as a judge on the Court of Appeals. Uh, I think the Supreme Court is a a different kettle of fish. Uh, But let me back up for just a moment. Uh, I came to Lansing in 1966. Some of you here may actually be as old as I am. I doubt it, but it's possible. The one difference For those of us who've been around that long, if you would ask anyone, my law partner, Richard McClellan, or anybody in that genre, what's changed about Lansing? The answer is about money, pure and simple. And this isn't just in the judicial branch, it's in the legislature, it's in the braces for governor. Across the board, we're seeing elevated levels of contribution, elevated special interest groups, uh, either uh, on the books or off the Uh, making contributions. So I don't think we should reach the conclusion that the money uh, and the influence of money is limited to the judicial branch. It isn't, uh, rather self-evident. If you spend some time going through campaign reports, as Rich does, uh, he can tell you how much went into the governor's race, how much went into a state senate race, uh, what an open state senate seat cost in Grand Rapids last time, for example. In my case, I haven't. Uh, I've, been, I've run three times, twice I've, uh, I've been unopposed, so it was kind of a walk in the park, uh, but once I had serious opposition, and my serious opposition happened to have the name of Michael Kelly. Uh, Irish names are good in Michigan politics, Michigan judicial politics, uh, and I had to run a serious campaign against Mike Kelly. By the way, he is now in our court, his office is about 15 feet from mine, and we're actually pretty good friends. Uh, but fascinatingly enough, if you were to go back and analyze the campaign contributions that came into my campaign that year, uh, and I think it's clear from, uh, from my background which side of the political fence I might be on, uh, the largest single contributors to my campaign were labor unions, uh, the Police Officers Association, uh, the Fireman, Fireman, Firefighters Association, Uh, Building Trades Council, Uh, these are the largest single contributors to my campaign. I could not identify in all of the roughly $400,000 that I rose and that raised and that was what I needed uh, to beat Mike Kelly and I just beat him, I only beat him by 30,000 votes. If, If my name had not been on the ballot with the word judge in front of it, I would probably have lost. Uh, I couldn't identify, for example, a single contribution from an insurance company or an insurance executive. Uh, interesting that uh, when when fingers start getting pointed, well, it's always the insurance industry that's funding all these candidates. Well, they sure didn't fund me. Um, so the, the, that's a long answer to a short
2: question. Well, and you raised a couple of points that we want to get into before we do. that, I want to remind everyone that we will be taking questions from the audience uh, towards the latter part of the. the Presentation. So, if you have questions, be sure to write them out, and we'll get them up to me. Um, you didn't get any contributions from insurance companies. You got most of your contributions from labor unions.
4: The largest single contributions.
2: You get any contributions from lawyers?
4: Oh yes. Uh, who contributes to uh, to judicial uh, campaigns? Well, you've got the interest groups, but you also have the lawyers, either well? individually or. Uh, through various associations,
2: uh, Kelly. I assume you're a lawyer. Don't have anything before either of these judges. Have you ever contributed to a judicial campaign? I,
5: I believe I um, co-hosted an event for Judge Whitbeck this last cycle. Yes, <laughs> and,
2: and 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 we had his check. <laughs> and and what what led you to do that? Why why do you did you why did you do that?
5: I, I I consider Judge Whitbeck a judge that uh, deserved to stay on the court. Um, at at the same time. Um, you know, it, if the people who I, I've been in, engaged in law at one level or another for thirty years, and uh, the judiciary is a is a significant component of it, I also write checks to legislators and other folks too. But um, um, you know, if nobody does it, uh, it it's just it's, they. The first, some of the first, cam- I'll digress a second if you don't mind. So, the first campaigns I, were invo- I was involved in was in the 1970s in state legislative races. And if you spent 100 grand per state senate seat, that was a lot. And then along came the 80s, and uh, TV really took over. There was some change in federal law, at the FCC, what was it, the Fairness Doctrine. Uh, moved a lot of public discourse out of the out of the regular uh, media and uh, television went from being maybe a 10 percent budget line to being in 80 90 percent budget line and then the next thing you know and I, I had this happen to me in a statewide campaign I ran that uh, uh, you'd pay 20,000 for an ad and you would get a call saying well somebody will pay more for that ad and uh, at the same time, uh, Cliff Taylor, who uh, was a Supreme Court justice, I was involved in a campaign on the other side of uh, uh, former Justice Taylor when he ran for attorney general against Frank Kelly And uh, Cliff put up one television ad, and afterwards he, he told me, he said, you know, he said, I didn't realize the power of TV. He said, once I had that ad out there, people were stopping me at Myers, And, and he said, now I get it. I said, I, I didn't understand before how, how much that meant. And so anyways, I, I guess I care about the institution and that it's, uh, you but know, people who I think. you're uncomfortable.
2: I mean, it, it doesn't raise any concern in your mind that these are judges. At some point, as a practicing attorney, you might end up before them. Everybody as a businessman knows you pay a little closer attention to the customer that pays you the most. Are you at all concerned that by contributing to a judicial campaign, there could be any kind of a hint of bias on the part of what the judge does? Not at the levels I'm writing checks. Well, Justice uh. Kelly, does, does that thought ever go through your or anyone I mean, your colleagues' mind? Uh, at what point do you feel like you you might have to recuse yourself? At what point do you worry, "Eh, this is is just too close financially?
3: It is a problem. I can't tell you at what point uh, I would feel that I could no longer judge a case. Though I have recused myself from time to time when I get an uneasy feeling. Uh, It hasn't happened to have been about money. Uh, It happens to have been about past associations I've had with somebody involved in the lawsuit. But we... uh, We've invoked, uh, we have passed a new rule in our court, and we're one of the only ones in the whole United States that's done it. And it was largely in response to that uh, Caperton case that you heard Rich mention. And we have said that uh, now if a justice is asked to recuse himself or herself and chooses not to do it, uh, that the person seeking recusal can ask the entire court to recuse that justice against the justice's will. Now we haven't had a situation where that happened yet, but as of but today, but that's also been a very
2: controversial happen. rule within right. your court. That's and right. and that which actually gets to another point that we'll get into a little bit and there's there's been some discussion that that rule could be overturned. Is that it correct? Certainly
3: could be. It's a, it's a court-made rule. Rich, how
2: when you look at campaign judicial campaigns in general, how involved is the legal profession in in raising the money, contributing the money for judicial elections?
6: It's quite involved, uh, generally speaking, and if we talk about the Supreme Court, generally speaking, uh, the parties are the top contributors. The the parties have license to contribute to a candidate twice as much as any political action committee can. A political action committee can give 10 times as much as an individual person can. Uh, The various interest groups, participate fulsomely. A lot of times, one of the top contributors in the Supreme Court Justice's campaign will be the partners and associates of any given law firm. And in fact, in many cases, a firm will li- write a check and then it will be itemized, attributed to all the various partners. So uh, you'll find some oddball fraction amount attributed to all these various partners in a firm. So. Uh, the the legal profession is is heavily involved, and and honestly, I think uh, lawyers know the candidates best. Uh, a lot of the the public, I think, we're we're in the dark about who these candidates are and how to uh, how to assess their qualifications and their judicial temperament and all the kinds of qualities we'd like to see in a judge. So it's. Uh, it's a heavy involvement, but the, the position I take about this is the legislature has set contribution limits for these various offices. And as far as I'm concerned, when a person or an interest group makes a legal contribution to uh, a justice candidate's campaign, that's just the system we have. And I presume that there's not a problem with that unless the justice decides on their own that there is. But what concerns me is this much larger portion, the part of the iceberg that's below the surface. And I'll tell you, that's not where 50 and $100 checks are aggregated. That's where five, six, and seven figure checks land. And we're fools to let this happen to us, that uh, this much money can can be a part of determining the outcome of these campaigns, and there's no accountability for it, whatever.
2: Well, why why not then, Justice Kelly, you're part of a, and Judge, Judge Whitmer Whitbeck as well, you're part of a, a, a committee looking at how the judicial judges in the state are, are chosen. Why not get rid of the risk altogether? Judge Whitbeck, you were appointed. Why not get rid of elections altogether and just have all the judges appointed in the state?
4: I'm going to take something of a contrarian view on this uh, because I believe in judicial elections and I probably will continue to believe in them. First, let's unhook the question of financing campaigns from judicial selection. The two are related, Uh, I'll grant you that, Uh, but judicial elections do not cause a political contribution. Uh, they they cause them in the sense that they occur. Uh, But this is not a causal relationship, it's correlation. Uh, And how close correlation is, is always a question. But frankly, um, electing judges is the the least worst alternative. Uh, There are plans out there, for example, uh, that delegate the the responsibility of, of putting together slates of candidates I'm generalizing here, uh, to uh, commissions of one sort, you know, a, a group of wise men and women who are going to tell us who the best candidates will be and then the governor must select from those. Those, uh, To me, that's the absolute worst thing you can possibly do. I mean, talk about lack of accountability. Uh, who are these folks accountable to? Wait a minute, hold on. Didn't that how you got under the court in the first place? In a sure wedding? it was. Uh, and who was... Who was I agree, who's accountable for that? John Ingram. Uh, he, he was, it was out in the open uh, how he made his selection. He made it. He didn't rely on a slate uh, provided by a bunch of unelected officials who, by the way, are uh, often, uh, uh, Missouri being the best example, uh, stakeholders in the very process in which they're, they're participating. So it strikes me that this idea of, of delegating the responsibility, if you will, in the uh, in, selecting judges to a, an unelected panel is just about the worst thing you could
2: do. But Kelly, you served, you you worked with Governor Granholm in selecting all these judges. You outlined the process that you used before. Now, you know, get elected as a judge, pretty much all you got to do is have a law license from some mail-order law school and you can put yourself on the ballot. Um, you talked about going through looking at the transcripts, looking at their financial background, looking at all their various problems. Wouldn't it be better as much as Judge Whitbeck doesn't like it wouldn't it be better to, in fact, have a group of people go through the qualifications of a person and make some, at least some initial decisions on who would be the best and most qualified people to be judged? Well, I,
5: my bias is towards Judge Whitbecks and, and electing judges. However, the, the process we used um, involved uh, a pretty deep assessment and dive of the person, their integrity, their career, their character, and how good of a lawyer they were, whether they had a judicial temperament, how they performed in cases they handled. And that was provided back. We did it both internally in a state bar judicial panel, did it uh, as a matter of course. And uh, it it was pretty useful. They had access to a lot of information that you just, uh, voters do not have access to normally. Um, but th- the idea of uh, some unelected uh, who have no accountability to the body politic, I, I-, I don't agree with that.
2: Is the problem, is the problem then partly in that, as, as several people have pointed out, the lawyers are the best people to know who the judges are, and yet it's most of the people that are voting are not lawyers, is the problem getting the public to know who these candidates are and to fairly assess them. Justice Kelly, you had talked about that. Yes,
3: I think of the biggest flaws in the system that we have right now, one of the two is voter apathy and ignorance. And there's much that could be done to improve that. Let me just say that uh, the statistics I've seen would indicate that of the 60% of eligible voters on the average who might go to the polls and vote, only 40% of them actually vote for the judges, which means we've got, what, 20 25% of the people who might be voting for judges actually voting for them. A smallish percentage of the electorate elects our judges. That's a problem. We have many people who simply skip it when they come to that part of the ballot because they don't know anything about it and they don't want to guess, and that's understandable. Other states have found ways to help uh, educate the electorate and interest them in these races. For example, there are several states where the uh, Secretary of State sends out a voter guide to every person who's likely to vote, giving them pretty good information about the candidates. And frankly, in this day and age, with access to information that we have through the internet, I'm confident that we can supply people with lots of good information, not propaganda information, but good, solid information about the candidates We have to get their attention, we have to get them to care enough to prepare before they go to the polls and vote.
2: Judge Whitbeck, you pointed out what you said was possibly the advantage for you in the the race against who is now Judge Kelly. Um, And and you've been able to do it, Justice Kelly's been able to do it, anyone who's a judge has been able to do it. They run for office and they get to stick underneath their name on the ballot, Judge, of whatever office there is. Rich, does that give an unfair advantage to that person in terms of running?
6: It does give an advantage. Uh, We are one of relatively few states, I think of, uh, I think there are six states that identify incumbent judges on the ballot. So, uh, I think it's 28 states that go through this merit selection, merit appointment with retention election process. Of the 22 that do competitive elections, small minority, identify the incumbents on the ballot. And uh, in my mind, it is uh, an advantage. And as Justice Kelly said, this phenomenon of the the voter fall-off by the time you get to the judges. Judges are on the nonpartisan part of the ballot. And not only do you have fewer votes for the judges and the Supreme Court justices, but if there's not an incumbent, the roll-off is even greater, because voters are looking for some kind of cue about who to vote for. And a lot of times, the voter's most reliable cue is party identification. Well, that's not there. And if the incumbency designation is there, that guides a voter, and I think it is a real advantage, and not to say it's not a desirable advantage. It's an advantage. Uh, So it's, it's a complicated kind of a situation there are a lot of moving parts uh, there are a lot of variables and if you look at how this process goes in the 50 states uh, it's a long long grid of the number of permutations that are adopted across
2: the let's do a quick poll here Justice Kelly should you get rid of the incumbency designation on the
4: ballot
3: Um, I'm not inclined to do it no.
2: Judge
4: Whitbeck Neither am I. Uh, and by the way, it's not out of self-interest. I can't run again, so it doesn't make any difference to me. <laughs> and in I'm in the same campaign. boat. <laughs> Rich?
6: Uh, let me be the provocateur. I'll say yes. We should get rid of it.
2: Kelly? I I, I would tend to side with Rich. Ah. Okay. So we've got the we got the judges <laughs> saying no, and we've got the the non-judges saying yes. But let's let's bring up something that you both just brought up. Though under the Constitution, once you once you hit the grand old age of seventy, you cannot run for re-election. Should that be done away
3: with? I don't think so. Uh, Obviously, I feel that I could go on forever. Um,
2: Your mother is 104. 104,
3: right? We can serve after the age of 70, but we can only serve out the term. So in theory, on the Supreme Court, one could be even 78 before one is out of office. Most will leave office before 70 or by 70. Um, I think there should be an upper limit. I think we see in the U.S. Supreme Court uh, some justices who are wonderful, wonderful uh, jurists, but perhaps have overstayed their their time on the court. So I believe there should be a limit. Whether it should be 70 or 75 or even 80, uh, to me is not the big question.
4: Judge Whitbeck. I I think I take the opposite view. And I I would suggest that the United States Supreme Court, which does not have an age level, uh, for every uh, uh, Douglas who stayed well beyond his time uh, when he was ill and clearly should not have been on the court. You have an Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, who served with distinction well into his 80s and and wrote some of his best opinions uh, when he was over the age of 80. Um, I'm not sure, well, And then I couple that with my experience in the private sector. Uh, My former law firm, one of them, has a 65 and out policy, uh, which means they booted my good friend uh, uh, from that law firm when he was 65, when he was billing a million dollars. Now that is the dumbest one thing I have ever heard. Uh, Similarly, I think it is just flat dumb uh, to boot somebody out at age 70 they're capable of, of doing their job. Um, I just, I just am not in favor of age limits, no matter where they are. Uh, I, I don't think that uh, one size fits all, and I don't think our history uh, illustrates that uh, that these limits really have uh, have any salutary effect. Um, throughout the state, I know of judges who have reached that age limit who would have continued to serve, would have continued to run. Uh, had, they, had the age limit not been there. And now they're just sort of on the sidelines. They're so wasting that talent. And, and uh, you should not do that. You should not waste talent.
2: Well, let's keep going on real quick on that. Rich, what do you think?
6: Uh, I don't like this age limit. I, uh, I And I'd add to Justice Holmes, Justice John Paul Stevens, uh, who not only wrote brilliant opinions into his 90s, but could still beat any one of us in the tennis rally. I, uh, I, I think, uh, to me, it will be a loss to the Michigan judiciary, both when Justice Kelly and Judge Woodbeck leave the bench. And I, not that they shouldn't be able to retire, uh, but I, I think that uh, I want the best we've got, and I hate to see that age limit.
2: Kelly, what do you think?
5: I, I would probably trade uh, abolishing the uh, age limit along with the incumbency designation.
2: Let's. Look a little bit more at the judicial qualifications. I mean, we've had some discussion about whether or not somebody should go through and review ahead of time. As we pointed out, if you're running for judge, pretty much all you have to be is a lawyer. Um, Kelly, you had to go through qualifications, as you, as you talked about before. Should there be a minimum qualification for someone to run and serve as judge? Should they at least have been in practice for X the, number there, of years? The, there is
5: a five-year uh, practice requirement but it's, point that's
2: relatively new yes it is is. Yes, five it is. years
5: enough depends on the attorney and what court they're running for and what they've been doing you could take someone who'd been uh, who's been working a prosecutor's office where they've been handling a lot of cases and they run for district court they could be very well qualified
2: no, but somebody could have also gotten a law degree and never you know, paid their bar association dues and never really practiced and, well, and run. Well, you know, hopefully in, in the course of a
5: campaign, if they're just running for office, somebody, either the uh, local newspaper or concerned citizens or their opponents would point out their lack of uh, experience and expertise in the course of the campaign.
2: Well, how likely is that, would you say, Rich?
5: Well, I think it's pretty likely. If someone was running... If you had three or four candidates, and one had a lot of uh, legal experience, especially relevant legal experience in the courtroom that they're running for, and one had simply uh, wrote their yearly check to the state bar, I, I, and I've ran a number of campaigns, I would certainly make certain that well, that was highlighted.
2: One point we didn't bring out is that you, if you're self-funding a campaign, mm-hmm. there are no limits. Let's say you're a wealthy guy, you've been a wealthy businessman, You've got a law degree because daddy said you got to get a law degree when you were a kid. You've never practiced law. Now you decide you want to be a judge, and you're going to write the check for it. I mean, that's not outside the realm of possibility, is it, Rich? Uh,
6: No, it's not, and it happens quite a lot. Uh, We've had some very expensive uh, circuit court races, particularly in Oakland County, comes to mind. Uh, The interesting thing is... uh, in 10 years that I've been studying money and state campaigns, generally speaking, money wins 95% of the time. But that success rate is less in contested judicial elections. So somehow, uh, it's not as tight a controlling factor. Uh, and in fact, some of some of the most heavily self-funded campaigns haven't been successful, so how it plays out that way, I, I'm not sure whether, in the end, people uh, make a, a more judicious evaluation. of the, Their judicial candidates, I can't say, but money's not quite as tight a controlling factor.
2: Judge Whitbeck, is five years enough Should somebody wanting to be judge, have more than just five years of legal experience?
4: Well, I think I agree with Kelly. It, it depends on the kind of legal experience. You've got a, a young prosecutor who's uh, been thrown into uh, district or circuit court and is trying jury trials uh, for four out of those five years, sure. Um, and particularly at the circuit court level, uh, that's just the kind of experience you want. Um, it, as matters broaden out, uh, the reason for that rule, by the way, um, for those of you who are political history junkies, it's the Jimmy Del Rio rule. Uh, Jimmy Del Rio was a, a state uh, House of Representatives uh, who was going to law school at night, and he got his, uh, got his uh, sheepskin past the bar and ran uh, within months uh, for a circuit court uh, position in what uh, used to be called the Recorder's Court down in Detroit, and he won. Uh, Jimmy took to bandishing a pistol from the bench, um, things sort of uh, of that nature, And he was removed from office by the Judicial Tenure Commission. And not terribly long after that, that five-year experience uh, rule became law. Uh, Again, it depends on the kind of experience. I didn't. My first career was as a transactional lawyer. Uh, I was basically a real estate lawyer. Uh, I I closed real estate deals. Uh, It wasn't until my second career, when I came back into practice, that I started litigating. Uh, both of those experiences I think have served me well on the appellate court. But remember you know, the Court of Appeals the Supreme Court is not a trial court. There are different skill levels and different requirements in these various courts. I mean, on the appellate court, the chief requirement is an open mind, a willingness to learn. Uh, every case is new. You know, it's, it's the best job in the world for that reason because every case is new. They're not doing the same case over and over again uh, where that that uh, trial court experience might be invaluable at a circuit court level, where well, that's what they're doing. They're trying cases over.
2: Now, you just made a comment. Let's get into one of the more controversial aspects of judicial selection. Justice Kelly, you're elected on a nonpartisan ballot. Right. But everybody knows that you're a Democratic judge. Right. And right now, the Supreme Court is controlled by Republican judges.
3: Right.
2: If you're all elected on a nonpartisan ballot, how the hell is that possible?
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, it's the general election. Uh, the only time we're on the ballot, it's nonpartisan.
2: But how do you, how then is it decided that you're a Democrat or Republican in the first place?
3: We have to win the nomination of a political party convention.
2: Now does that make any sense whatsoever, to have partisan conventions choosing candidates for a nonpartisan ballot?
3: It's greatly criticized. I think we're the only state in the country that does that. Uh, I understand that there was some uh, compromise arrived at at the Constitutional Convention, because that is part of the Constitution, and it would require a major change in order to get rid of it. But the fact is, it's what we've lived with for a whole long time. But political parties do play a role in trying to winnow down candidates. Let me tell you, for example, that when I ran for Court of Appeals, there were two seats open. There were 16 people running in the primary. Now, that was in Oakland County and surrounding counties. The people who went to the polls that That election, that primary election, were called upon not only to choose among these 16 people, but choose among many others for other positions as well. And I would defy anybody to be well enough educated to really understand who the better ones of the 16 were, especially since a lot of money wasn't spent on that. Now had the political parties been making that winnowing choice, they would have uh, winnowed out some of the less qualified individuals for the bench.
2: Well, then why not, why go through this whole, in, in some respect, charade then? And Judge Whitbeck, you've already indicated that you're a Republican by nature. Why bother to have judges as elected on a nonpartisan basis? Why not put them up like everybody else, run as Democrats or Republicans?
4: I guess the answer is that um, since, the, since the beginning in Michigan, um, remember we've had really five constitutions, and I'm counting the Northwest Ordinance as a constitution. The first two provided for the appointment of judges. Uh, the Northwest Ordinance, three judges uh, for the whole state of Michigan. Uh, the Constitution of 1835, which was actually passed before uh, Michigan became a state in 1846, provided for the appointment, not the election of judges. Interestingly enough, that appointment with the advice and consent of the Senate, uh, just as the United States government does. It is 1850 that we uh, Went to the system that we have now. Uh, the 1963 convention, however, provides that judges shall be elected on the nonpartisan ballot. All judges. Justices of the Supreme Court, uh, the Court of Appeals, and uh, trial court judges will all be elected on the nonpartisan ballot. The only kink in, in all of this is the method of selecting Supreme Court justices. And it is Passeth understanding, frankly, uh, that let's take the Republican side of the aisle, uh, that a a, a person uh, gets nominated at Davos Hall in Grand Rapids in, a, in a, an intensely partisan convention, and walks out of the Amway Hotel and the light shines down and they become nonpartisan. Well, of course not. Uh, that's not what happens. Uh, the parties heavily contribute to their campaigns. They are running like they're not as Democrats and Republicans. Uh, less so at the Court of Appeals, interesting way. Uh But you could change it in Michigan. Uh, I continue to favor the election of judges, uh, but uh, the, the nominating convention twist at the Supreme Court is by statute. That can be changed by the legislature. You don't need a constitutional convention or a constitutional amendment to do that. Uh, it's, it's in the law but it's not in the Constitution.
2: Rich, how much does this conundrum of, of the judicial election process, how much does this play into the amount of money that's gone into the Supreme Court races and the kind of campaigning that we've seen in the last several years? Because you've had some pretty knockdown, dirty, drag-out fights for what would be considered a rather uh, genteel occupation.
6: Well, uh, I I think that there is a, a sense among partisans that the power of interpreting law is so great that it can be a substitute for writing law. And if the majority on the Supreme Court is four and you need 76 votes in a legislature to pass a law, there's a certain attraction to trying to win your majority on the Supreme Court, and, and Justice Kelly is right. Our system is unique of this party nomination, nonpartisan general election. Ohio may be even sillier. They do partisan primaries and nonpartisan general, but. Uh, Wisconsin's electing a Supreme Court justice tomorrow. It's a nonpartisan primary and a nonpartisan general election, and everybody knows who the Republican is and who the Democrat is. Uh, it, it is a conundrum, and uh, it's complicated. It's just complicated.
2: Kelly, Governor Granholm was leader of the party, leader of the Democratic Party, she was governor. Um, what role, if any, did she play in helping the Democrats decide who was going to run for Supreme Court? Now, obviously, you had some incumbents; you had Justice Kelly, for example, and others. But you had open seats as well. Did she play any role in deciding who those candidates would be?
5: She gave some consideration to it, certainly, because they were going to be on the ballot at the same time as she was, generally speaking. And uh, if you're the if you're running and you have some ability to help. Uh, decide who's going to be on the ballot. You know, you're going to exercise that. You don't want someone on the ballot who ends up being, you know, a real drag, if you will, anywhere on the ballot. Um, as to how heavily she was engaged, I mean, I, I would spend some time on it, and she was aware of who was engaged, and uh, you know, I think if there was someone who she didn't feel was qualified, uh, they wouldn't have been able to
2: get a nomination did electability play any role in the judicial selections that she made especially when you looked at things like court of appeals was that any kind of a factor in her decisions
5: well I, she was looking for what she felt was real quality and it, you know the the electoral process may get a, get a, get a bad rap everybody sees all the TAC ads and and what have you However, I I think no system's perfect, and and as a whole, the cream kind of rises, and and that actually, over the longer span, the best do get elected, and the best candidates are the most electable. Somebody who's got a real problem in their background isn't going to be electable if that problem pops out, so you're going to steer around a person who maybe declared bankruptcy and nobody knew it, and uh, it ended up they are someone who had a domestic violence uh, assault in their background that nobody really knew about it. But you know, we learned it through through vetting. Uh, you certainly wouldn't consider a person like that very electable, and you wouldn't want to put them on the bench.
2: So. You talked about attack ads, and we've seen in the Supreme Court race attack ads two years ago, now almost three years ago, we had one of the more infamous ones, which accused your former colleague, Chief Justice Taylor at the time, of sleeping on the bench. A, we have to ask, did you ever see Justice Taylor
3: sleeping on the bench? I don't usually look at my colleagues when I'm on the bench. (laughs) I'm looking at uh, those who are in front of the bench arguing at us. I can't say I saw him sleep.
2: But what about that ad in general? I mean, is, is there any concern on your part that, A, it may diminish the judiciary Why, as course, part of it?
3: Of course. I'm very concerned about these attack ads, just as I am and Rich is about the amount of money that's getting thrown into these campaigns. Particularly, it happens, in my observation, when the balance of power is up for grabs. Uh, and so one of the reasons my campaigns didn't happen to involve millions of dollars is because the it didn't matter in terms of who ran the court or who got elected during my campaigns. But in any event, I think that the attack ads, the truly unfair attack ads are a blemish on our, on our system and they give pause. They give you obviously pause and they give me pause to ask whether our system is working the way we want it to. It isn't just whether the judges themselves are corrupted by the system. It's, it's also whether the public believes that the judges can't be fair, have become corrupted. If we lose the public's trust and confidence in the way judges decide cases, we can't have a judiciary, we can't have courts that make decisions that people trust.
2: Do you think, Judge Whitbeck, that, that ads like that
4: make the people feel like they can't trust the courts? Definitely. Um, I mean, it really doesn't matter which which side of the fence you're on, mm-hmm. I think, on, on this point. Um, I mean That ad in particular was, uh, in, in my, my view, uh, false. Uh, it was simply flat out untrue. Uh, and you look at the source of it, I think you could probably understand why. Um, but that wasn't the only ad. I mean, they're on the other side of the, of the fence, for example. My colleague, Tom uh, Fitzgerald, when he ran for the Supreme Court, uh, was accused of, of favoring uh, uh, terrorists yeah. because he'd, he'd voted uh, to uphold a trial court decision uh, to exclude some particular evidence of some kind. And the Republican Party, my party, ran an ad saying, well, uh, Tom Fitzgerald uh, uh, is soft on crime and soft on child molesters, which is uh, if anyone here knows Tom Fitzgerald, it's the furthest thing from the truth. So it's you know it's both sides. Well, did of the you fence. do
2: anything about it? Did you call them? I mean, you you got connections in the party. Did you call them up and say, "Hey, what what are you doing this for? You know, this is this is nonsense." Well, as a matter of fact, they did. And, uh, and they it has had absolutely no
4: effect. <laughs> I mean, politics is politics, and uh, they wanted to win that seat. They did. Um, they were helped along by the <laughs> the Democratic Party, who managed to. Uh, the name recognition of the three Republican candidates up to the point that they, they could hardly lose. Uh, but, and there is a but here. I probably regret saying this, but candidly, with some reservations, if you have an elected system, judges are politicians. They're running for office. Uh, they're going to campaign uh, to win. That's the way the system is. Uh, If you want to change the system, fine. Uh, If you want to go to an appointed process, for example, where the governor appoints, which in my opinion is the the second worst alternative after the wise uh, old owl panels, uh, that's fine. Uh, Change the process. But if you want to stay with this process, uh, where judges run for office, then they are, by definition, politicians. Uh, They're going to go out and shake hands. They're going to eat a lot of rubber chicken. They're going to raise money. They're going to know who contributes to it. Uh, And believe me, we do know. Um, But they are politicians. And you cannot expect in the political arena that people (coughs) are going to play by the Marcus of Queensbury rules because they don't. Uh, Every person in this audience knows that. That's not the way politics is run in 2011, it wasn't the way politics was run in, in uh, 1875, for example, when, when Abraham Lincoln was running for re-election. It was called, uh, got the wrong date there, uh, was called Every Name in the Book. Uh, that is the way the political system works. So if you're gonna elect judges, then expect that they're gonna behave as politicians. Well, Rich,
2: is there any way, obviously, the First Amendment comes into play in something like this, is that, though, the way to elect a judge? Is there another way, from your, your standpoint, that maybe that doesn't deal with the wise old owls, as Judge Whitbeck has talked about, that, that there's a way of electing judges that maybe doesn't get into to some of the gutter?
6: Well, I, I think there's an opportunity, uh, and neighboring states have exercised it in the course of uh, campaigns where specious claims are thrown at candidates And particularly I'm thinking uh, in Ohio earlier in the 2000s and in Illinois in 2010, there were formed campaign conduct committees that were creations of a combination of the bar and civic society who could evaluate the claims that were being made in these television ads that were very influential and make a point that Uh, a judge may have uh, disallowed some evidence in a trial because he was required by the rules of evidence to do that. To try to bring some truth, honesty, integrity to the entire process, not that we expect political parties to do that and be self-governing about it, but we can find those kind of resources within our state society who can come together, overcome partisanship, and help the, the voting public to, to understand the truth of the underlying claims.
2: Kelly, Governor Granholm wasn't, wasn't a great fan of, of Justice Taylor in many respects since They were on opposite sides of the uh, political spectrum and, and in many respects, opposite sides of the judicial spectrum as well. And she was involved in some pretty tough elections herself. Does she have any thought about uh, the kinds of ads that ran against Justice Taylor, the kinds of ads that have been running in some of the campaigns? She is a person who has great respect for the judiciary, right? Yes, she does. Everybody has said that she would make a great
5: judge. I I do not know about, I don't recall that specific ad conversing about it however uh, she, she she was not a fan of attack ads and um, you know her last opponent uh, reported spending 35 40 million and we figure there was probably another 25 million spent something like that against her and uh, a lot of it was negative and uh, so she, she was not a fan of that but, um, it, you know, there, there has been some efforts to speak to what Rich brought up. I think it was at the Center for Michigan, uh, Phil Powers Group. Somebody put together a group uh, a couple of election cycles ago that um, evaluated ads uh, on a truth or truthiness scale. And um, occasionally you did see ads pulled down where TV stations or campaigns pulled down ads when they got hit hard enough um, in the press, in the free press, in other places for ads that were not uh, based on fact.
2: Now, we had a, a controversy on judicial selection, and it was on the Supreme Court in the last year that Judge, Governor Granholm was involved in, and, the, and it became part of an issue in the, in the Supreme Court campaign. Now, for those who don't remember, Justice Weaver decided to resign. And as she resigned, Governor Granholm named what became Justice Davis. And there was accusations made by Republicans that there was an under-the-table deal, in effect, made on this. First of all, Justice, was there any, did you have any indication ahead of time that Justice Weaver was, eh, gonna resign? before maybe she told the rest of her colleagues, and B, that Justice Davis was going to be the person named.
3: No, I had no forewarning at all, and I learned about it the same way you did.
2: Kelly, you weren't with the administration at that time, but did you have any insight into this?
5: Well, Justice Weaver, on a number of occasions, had indicated an interest in resigning, including in, I think it was 2004, she had even... She'd let it publicly be known to the the point that um, the governor recognized her at the state of the state. Uh, And she accepted an ovation that she was stepping down, and she didn't. Uh, With respect to this specific uh, um, uh, appointment, I don't have a lot I can share, other than I suspect the governor was... um, quite willing to consider a candidate for appointment who would represent, if you will, the same part of the state as
6: Justice Weaver was from.
2: Well, Judge Weaver, doesn't this whole thing though, because it became part of the campaign, does this in any way justify your argument that uh, judicial election should be the main, the main way of doing judicial selection, and, and B, does it point to the idea that, well, you got to come up with a better way of, of, of making these decisions? Maybe a few wise old owls wouldn't have been a bad idea in this case.
4: Well, one, one never knows. I mean, it, it, I think it's it's clear from from Justice Weaver's comments that she had, a, at a minimum, suggested to the governor that someone from the upper part of the state uh, should be appointed to replace her. Now, beyond that, I have no knowledge about uh, what may or may not have have transpired. And obviously, Tom Davis, my colleague, is from the upper part of the state. So I guess you draw your own conclusion. But frankly, I guess I have to say it, and I'm not trying to be flip or cute, so what? Uh, When was it that political considerations didn't play a part in appointing people to public office, appointing or electing them? I mean, if there was if there was a deal, quote, um, I'm not put off by that. Uh, I think it's rather commonplace that uh, one takes into account a number of circumstances and and may reach an understanding. Uh, I'm not troubled by it. Uh, I I don't, and I I understand that my party ran ads based on you know calling Tom Davis uh, uh, a deal maker or something along that line. Frankly, I I think most of the electorate just kind of shrugged their shoulders over that, at least I certainly did. I don't don't think so. I think it
3: had a big influence. Uh, And it is true that if we had a true marriage election system, uh, the governor wouldn't have been able to make that appointment like that, and we would have had the opportunity uh, to to take uh, matters um, out of the purely political realm. Now I admit that whoever the wiser laws are matters, and that's the key that every system, including the elective system, as we've heard, um, is flawed in many in many minor and sometimes major ways. Well, the merit selection system has its flaws too. The question might be which of the flawed systems does one prefer?
1: Well, we, we talked earlier about John, John. John. I, I yes. first of all my mind the privilege of the griffin chair and throw in a, a point and ask a question up, up here. And I want to also, do. if any of you have questions, make sure you have time to do that. Uh, if, if first of all, um, I, I, you know, the discussion that we've had would, would lead one to believe um, that, you know, the appointments process, that the, the, while the elections process is subject to all kind of political stuff, uh, you know, the appointments process is very pure and simple. Uh, you know, and and I, I, and I let's be honest, I don't think John Engler ever appointed a Democrat to be a judge, and I don't think Jennifer Granholm ever appointed a Republican oh, to be did. a judge, or hardly, hardly ever, okay? I mean, hardly. you know, there are political – you know, I just want to make that clear. It's not all sweetness and light when when people are being appointed by governors, um, which doesn't mean that they're appointing people who shouldn't be on the bench, okay? Okay. Um, and, and I also wanted to point out on, on the designation, which you've talked about, as saying justice of the Supreme Court or judge of the Court of Appeals. We've we heard the designation is that, you know, whenever the legislature—that's uh, just a statute. There's, there's nothing in the Constitution. And whenever the legislature used to get rid, mad at the judiciary, which was about forty-six or seven times a year, we would always threaten to take the designation away. And that was the only time we ever saw the judiciary, you know, in Lansing. But, but um, Justice Kelly, why was the task force formed? All right, you know, let me, I mean, is it because there's too much politics? Is it because there's too much money? Is it because we should move away from elections? Is it, be, you know, there's got to be a reason that this task force, and I don't want to say suddenly came into being, but came into being. And then if any of you guys have a question, you can scroll up or two.:
3: We formed the task force because we, I think, believe that there are some major flaws in our present system, and we are looking at how they can be corrected and whether changing or correcting them involves going to an entirely new system or merely changing the system we have. But as I said earlier, I believe at least, and I think most members of the task force believe, that the public's trust and confidence in the courts and how they function uh, has been eroded and damaged, and we're responding to a need to turn that around.
2: And Judge Whitbeck you're on the committee do you concur with Justice Kelly that uh, that the public confidence is being eroded yes I do
4: uh, I, I think uh, though that when asked to serve on a committee like this uh, when the Chief Justice and the Supreme Court asks you to serve on a committee uh, you're probably going to say yes <laughs> and so I did uh, but uh, you know telling I think uh, Justice Kelly and and rich that up front that I, uh, I doubt that I'm gonna be talked out of favoring uh, judicial elections. Now that doesn't mean that we shouldn't make significant changes in our system. I don't think, for example, that Supreme Court justices should be nominated at, at partisan uh, uh, party conventions. I, do th- I think that the interplay between the canons of ethics and what you are required to do uh, by the state bar And the campaign finance laws have created a situation where, uh, frankly, uh, you've made hypocrites of us all. Um, It is, no one here, I I think, believes that when someone contributes to my campaign, I don't know about it. And if you believe that, you're wrong. I usually knew about it within about 24 hours. Uh, I simply can't take a check oh, but wait, the check goes to a campaign committee that I create and consists of one person, a treasurer. Uh, it's, frankly, an exercise in hypocrisy. And whenever you start engaging in, in those kind of exercises, whenever, you know, appearance and reality don't mix or don't mesh, you've got a problem. Uh, and I think that, that problem, that interplay between what we are uh, required to do what we're allowed to do, and when we're allowed to do it, uh, causes a major problem. Uh, Rich Robinson's absolutely right, that these millions of dollars of contributions that are off the books, um, leads to the conclusion, I think, in many people's minds, that these offices can be bought. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily true, uh, but the appearance, and I'm not big on an appearance standard, But the very idea uh, that these contributions are not disclosed at all is is simply, uh, frankly, repugnant. Um, uh, If if you were to ask me to remake the campaign finance laws, and I could only do one thing, I would say disclose, 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 disclose within 24 hours. Put it on the Internet. Uh, Sunlight is the best disinfectant to, quote, Justice Frankfurter, uh, and that's, that's certainly so. So, yes, there are significant changes that, that can and should be made to our system. Justice
2: Kelly, let's run down the panel real quickly. Do you agree with Judge Whitbeck that uh, something has to be done in terms of the, the undisclosed contributions?
3: Yes, I definitely agree.
2: And, and and uh, Rich, I'm going to presume that you do, since you see <laughs> it.
6: Well, I do, uh, and... Uh, to put this in context, a, a, again, in 10 years of monitoring public broadcasters, I found $65 million worth of advertisements in gubernatorial campaigns and Supreme Court campaigns that aren't disclosed in the campaign finance reporting system. I just happen to think that the judiciary is the worst place for it because, uh, you know, Legislators and elected executives have legitimate relationships with interest groups. Judges and justices serve only the law and it, everything should be above board on the table. And while I agree with justice, or Judge Whitbeck that I don't think uh, campaign contributions change the way a judge or justice would decide a case, when you're talking about a Supreme Court where cases are selected, to set uh to resolve uh, controversial issues or, or ambiguous issues. I'm not sure that the money doesn't have some effect on case selection.
2: Kelly, first of all, do you also concur with the rest of that? A- absolutely, there should
5: be real-time or 24-hour reporting of all, all spending on behalf of the Candidate too. however, with the U.S. Supreme Courts headed off in a direction that uh, 2012 promises to be a very wild cycle with uh unreported spin. And
2: having worked m- at more of the base political level than the two judges here, how do you get that kind of a change through? Because it would have to occur either at Congress or in the legislature.
5: Well, again, in a, in a Citizens United case, U.S. Supreme Court, um, I believe, it struck down our post parts of our post-Watergate campaign finance act. Um, you know, you you, you need the uh, a Supreme Court willing to uphold, and uh, state legislature and/or Congress willing to. It didn't quite strike down the whole act. No, but
6: but the the lesser appreciated part of Citizens United was a question by the plaintiff. Uh, you're saying that ultimately they were allowed as a corporation what's considered speech. I mean, this construct of money equals speech dates all the way back to 1976. We had a First Amendment long before that, and money was not equated to speech in any legal construct up to that point. But there was a question in Citizens United, you're saying we have to disclose, but you only mean express advocacy, right, if I say vote for vote against. And that was an eight to one decision that said, oh no, it's all of interest to the public. So constitutionally, we can require it to be disclosed. I just don't think I'll live long enough to see this legislature take it on. But being a citizens initiative state, there is that possibility.
2: Now, we've got some questions from the from the audience and, and Justice Kelly, in terms of the, the task force that, that you're part of, we've raised here, we've brought up a number of different issues, obviously some differences in how to approach things. How are you com- how are you going about the process of coming to whatever decisions and recommendations that that you will make?
3: Well, that's a good question. We're putting before the members of the task force uh, the opposing views. Uh, We didn't choose the members of the task force because of their uh, position, if they have had one, on the whole subject. But we're asking them to listen with an unbiased ear to the case for and the case against the changes that might be made. And we're doing that on a systematic month-by-month basis. In June, and it looks as if it will be June 14 in Detroit at Wayne State University Law School, we're going to have our first public meeting, Uh, and we're going to have some headliners there, including uh, Justice O'Connor, to uh, speak about uh, the case. In her case, it would be the case for the Merit Selection, a change to the Merit Selection System. Uh, We're going to have uh, an important person, and I'm not sure who that is yet, speak on the case for the elective system, etc.
2: And and let's jump back to the the question of, of age, to put it to put it delicately. <laughs> um, <laughs> have either of you personally experienced a situation where a judicial colleague or someone you saw from when you were lawyers in practice that there was a judge who was clearly passed it, shouldn't have been on the bench?
4: I've never experienced that on the Court of Appeals, probably because I'm the second oldest person on the Court of Appeals, so <laughs> I, I wouldn't be judging myself. Uh, I, I will say at the trial court level, yes, um, but rarely, very rarely. In, in 30 or 40 years of practice, uh, I think I could name on the fingers of one hand uh, trial court or uh, appellate court judges that I consider to be not competent to hold their position. Uh, and I've been before a lot of judges.
1: Uh, most
4: of them are quite competent. Uh, it's a bell-shaped curve, like anything, of course. Uh, there are some that are at this end. I think it's it's uh, pushes a little bit to the right end of the bell shape that, that you get a lot of very competent people who are in the judiciary.
2: Justice Kelly?
3: Yes, I've seen some. Now, bear in mind, we have For example, at this point, 618 state judges. Uh, By definition, there are going to be some who are in their late 60s, uh, and there are going to be some who are not well. They aren't necessarily the older ones either who aren't well. Um, I think that uh, our Judicial Tenure Commission does a good job of sometimes encouraging people who need to get off the bench to give it up and do that. So we are a uh, self-regulating profession and that does work pretty well from time
2: to time. I'm gonna paraphrase one question uh, that has come in and it it goes to the issue that you raised, Judge Whitbeck, about judges being politicians. And we've talked about whether or not the, the public can be confident that judges are free from financial influence. How confident should the public be that judges are free from political influence? Well, I
4: think you have to define uh, what you mean by that.
2: Well, Rich has pointed out a number of different issues where uh, and where there's been a lot of interest, obviously, in who's elected to the uh, to the Supreme Court. Um, we've well, already well. pointed out that we now have a four to three balance on the court between Republican justices and Democratic justices. Um, wouldn't it be reasonable to assume that, that the various people contributing money to these candidates weren't necessarily interested in their view on Marbury versus Madison?
4: <laughs> well, I, I'm on the one side of that argument, I, I do remember remember the Keating Five and the the, uh, the guy, that the savings and loan magnet, I think, uh, who had an unlikely name. I think it was something like Lincoln, uh, ironically enough. Uh, he was asked because they, he had thrown a ton of money into various... Uh, the Senate ele- uh, election campaign. He was asked whether he, uh, he thought he was getting anything for his money. And he said, well, I sure damn well hope so. Uh, because he was a businessman. He thought, you know, you pay your money, you get a quid pro quo. Uh, but in politics, you learn rather, rather quickly, I think, that it doesn't really work that way. Uh, that in my experience, uh, in two branches of government, the executive branch, and the uh, judicial branch. I have never had someone who contributed money attempt to call in a favor, not once, in uh, 50 years of banging around in this business one way or another, not once. Did someone call me on the phone and say, either a political party official or a donor, and say, you know, I, I contributed $5,000 to your campaign and I uh, I expect the kind of result out of you that I paid for. That's never happened.
2: Justice Kelly, do you think that the judges in the state, are especially at the appellate level and above, are free from political influence?
4: Well, no, not free
3: from political influence. And I might say, too, that uh, I agree with uh, Judge Whitbeck that nobody's ever called me either. However, the mere fact that the call hasn't been put through doesn't mean that you aren't expected, perhaps, to be sensitive to, uh, to contributors. And that's where the problem comes, of course, whether... You, in fact, can set yourself apart from that. And this is sometimes difficult for people to understand and believe. But it is part of the job of being a judge, uh, to learn to be able to set yourself aside uh, from the interest of people who contributed to your election or who are just friends. Even if we didn't have money involved, we'd have friendships involved and past associations. And one has to be able to say, you're my friend. I like you. I wish you the best, but unfortunately, I think you're wrong.
2: Rich, is the public concerned about political influence, or should they be concerned about political influence, uh, I
6: I think so. I think that the tone and tenor of political campaigns, especially judicial campaigns, is meant to evoke fear, and I think it does undermine confidence in the judiciary, and I think if people don't have faith in the impartiality of their courts, then they seek extra legal means to resolve their conflicts, to the detriment of society and the rule of law. So... uh, This is a real dilemma because we, we expect a lot of our judiciary. Uh, this is the place where simple majoritarianism is not enough, it's, it's constitutional principles. Uh, and so if you're falling victim to an unjust actor, the judiciary is, is the one safe place. And I think if we don't have trust and confidence in our judiciary, we've lost an awful lot about what makes our country great, what makes our state
2: great. Kelly, you're a Democrat. You've already said you supported a Republican. Is there, as you look at the ballot, is there a way that you can separate yourself as a partisan from the rest of the ballot when you go down to the judicial ballot and assess candidates on something other than a Democratic or Republican basis?
5: I have personal
2: knowledge
5: of the candidates a lot of times. I know them. You know, I know what they've done. I know their background. And, uh, you know, I have uh, my own personal opinion as to how good of a judge they may be or may not be. And, you know, I, I will tend to go with candidates who I consider to be more democratic in their values. But it's it's not a dispositive uh, uh, assessment by any means, I can think of uh, Democratic candidates that, you know, on turn, I, I'd have no more hair than you if the idea that I'm on the bench. <laughs> oh. uh,
2: sorry, John.
1: You but,
5: uh, <laughs> it, you know, so
2: it's it, it, cold. <laughs> That's right. It doesn't. Whitbeck and I are going to a bowling alley later <laughs> I, to stick our heads in the ball buffers.
0: <laughs> <so>.
5: <laughs> it does influence it to some extent, but it's not the most dispositive. Yeah.
2: Well, folks, Why? we're about at the end of the, the program. We're going to uh, we're gonna close it off with one fairly easy question, uh, which is a subject that we haven't touched on, but uh, the only judges in this state that are elected on a statewide basis are Supreme Court justices, the Court of Appeals all serve in districts, circuit court judges, of course, probate judges, and district court judges. And the question is, would you support electing Supreme Court justices on a geographic basis rather than a statewide basis? Mr. Kelly?
3: I tend not to favor that, and that's because I believe justices should not represent a part of the state, and they shouldn't even feel as if they're beholden to a part of the state. Uh, Our cases come from all over the state, and we don't really vote by districts.
4: I agree. I I really don't think that where a person comes from, uh, other than when you have to run within a, a judicial district, which you do on the Court of Appeals and on the trial courts. But statewide, um, I don't I don't see the, the benefit to be gained by some sort of geographically proportionate representation. I mean, when you think it through, uh, how exactly would you do that? Uh, would you do it by population? Would you do it by population centers? You, you'd get into, it seems to me, such arcane and hair-splitting uh, ways of determining which Part of the state should be more represented than others. You would also run into um, uh, one-man-one-vote uh, requirements. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were, for example, to require a Supreme Court justice to be from the Upper Peninsula, uh, you just really violated the idea of one-man-one-vote. Yeah. Uh, the person that voted in the Upper Peninsula would probably have uh, 25 or more times the voting vote a person in, in Wayne County, under that kind of a system. Uh, I doubt it would survive constitutional challenge.
2: Well, most of the justices on the court now are from the Detroit area. Rich, doesn't that perhaps give a, a somewhat sort of, skewed yeah. geographical view of, of justice?
6: Well, uh, of the 50 states, I think there are seven that select their Supreme Court justices by districts. And I'm glad we're not one of them. I, I just want the best we've got. I don't care where they come from. Uh, honestly, I'm agnostic about how we choose them. I, I just want the best we've got.
2: Kelly, what do you think? Do you think I, the public would like to see districts for the Supreme Court? I, I,
5: I think we need someone up there at a statewide level who has the whole state Uh, Not that the Court of Appeals doesn't, but um, the 1908 Constitution, I believe, had maybe 16 statewide electeds, Auditor General, Treasurer, and the 1963 Constitution brought it down to just foreign executive branch and and the uh, Supreme Court. And um, I I, I think there's real value in having uh, people run statewide and have that big picture perspective.
2: Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you all for uh, attending uh, this spring's Griffin uh, Convocation. My thanks to uh, Justice Kelly, Judge Whitbeck, Rich Robinson, Kelly Keenan. Um, obviously, everyone's got a dog in a fight starting in about a half hour. Uh, <laughs> so, whoever you're backing, <laughs> good luck to them both. Thank you again. Good job. Very, very <laughs>